Well, last week, we began by asking the question, what does a Christian look like? And we made our way through a number of stories in Acts chapter 19, which gave us little glimpses, not a comprehensive list, but glimpses in broad brushstrokes of what a Christian should look like. We determined that a Christian should, without a doubt, look different. That if the Holy Spirit has come to live in us, then there should be some material, there should be some visible, tangible difference in a believer's life. That a Christian should be patient, should persevere, should be faithful with the task that God has given them. That a Christian should be someone who in many respects the world looks at and is, and is jealous of. Should live a life that is desirable to those on the outside of Christ's kingdom looking in. And that a Christian was someone who is always prepared to speak for Jesus, whether or not God requires them to. And this morning, I want to ask us the same question again. What does a Christian look like? Now, I'm going to suggest a term to us this morning, and I want you to give me a yes or a no, wherever it is that you're taking part. Do you think that a Christian is someone who should be content? Should contentedness be a hallmark of someone who has faith in Jesus? My assumption is the vast majority of people are going to say yes. Why? Because Paul, the great apostle himself, tells us, encourages us in that direction in his letter to the Philippian church. He's thanking them for the support that he has received from them and he makes this wonderful declaration about himself as a believer. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I have learned to be content whether I have much or whether I have little. In all things I have learned the secret of being content, hungry or well-fed. Should a Christian look like a contented person? I'm going to surprise you perhaps for a moment and say that no. I don't think a Christian should be a contented person. That's a little switcheroo, I'm sure, for most of us. But hear me out. Paul here is speaking about contentment in terms of our lives, our physical state, our circumstances, whether I have much, whether I have little, whether I'm hungry, whether I'm well fed. Of course, Christians should, with the riches that we have in Jesus, be able to be content whether we have a lot or a little. But in another sense, and in a far more important sense to us today in the church, we need to be a people who are massively discontented discontented with where we're at, spiritually speaking. Discontented with how much we bear a resemblance to our Lord and our Saviour and our Master. Terribly discontented with the scope and the reach of the Gospel and the Kingdom in our place, in our time. There are so many things in the Christian life that we're not supposed to be content with. And here's one of the great evils that plagues our age, that plagues our church, even here in Anford. 
is that the things that we're supposed to be contented about, we're not. We stress, uh, we have anxieties and worries about our finances, our home, our reputation, our relationships. And we are, well, I wouldn't even say content, I'd say complacent with how close we are to Jesus, with the depth and the breadth and the vitality of our relationship with him. We're complacent about how we live like him and demonstrate him and know him. We're complacent about whether or not others come to know the joy that can be found in being with Jesus. Christians, in one sense, of course, we are called to be content, but in another sense, our lives are supposed to be filled with ants in our pants, never satisfied with where we have arrived. We're actually going to take a look back in Acts, Acts chapter 20, and it's the beginning of a new set of stories. We're only going to read seven verses, but it tells us what Paul did next after these stories that we were considering last week, after we saw those uh, disciples who hadn't received the Spirit, they didn't know who Jesus was. After we saw Paul faithfully declaring the good news in the synagogue for months on end and then through this lecture hall for years on end, of how others wanted to have what they had without bowing the knee to Jesus and how ultimately these believers who were willing to count the cost, who were willing to sacrifice and, and, and to burn these symbols and these material things linked to their old ways of life stirred up trouble for themselves by being so discontented in the world. Acts chapter 20 verses 1 to 7, we read what Paul did next. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled throughout that area speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally he arrived in Greece where he stayed for three months. Because some Jews were plotting against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Phyrus, from Berea, Artiascius and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also Antichius and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we, that's Paul and Luke, the author speaking now, sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. Five days later, joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. You see, it's, it's another episode in the life of Paul where he is showing extreme discontent. Not satisfied to stay where he is, but wanting to be on the move, wanting to be somewhere else, wanting to be making change and a difference in people's lives. And twice in the first two verses of Acts chapter 20, we read this, that Paul spends his time encouraging believers. Now, if I began asking that question, should a Christian be content? Let me move on to another question is, what do we understand Paul to be doing here? What is encouragement for a believer? Nine times out of ten, this is how I think we hear the word encouragement. We think of encouragement as getting alongside someone, patting them on the back, picking them up when they are down, lifting their chin up, 
telling them that they are doing a good job. Come on, boy. Keep going. You're all right. You're heading in the right direction. Thumbs up. Double thumbs up from me. Nine times out of ten, in our modern understanding, our modern way of thinking about encouragement, we think mostly of bringing comfort to someone who perhaps is a little bit low. And yet, that's not really what's going on here. When Paul, this Christian who is discontent with the, the state of the kingdom around him, the, the growth and the, the fullness and the maturity of the church, he goes around, he doesn't say, come on boys, you're doing all right. No, that encouragement is, is more like what some translations have it, of exhorting. He spent his time exhorting, challenging, pushing them towards change, passing on the discontentment that he had into this so that some material difference would be known and felt. The Greek word is actually parakleo, and it does mean, in that sense, comforting someone. But it also means championing a cause. It also means challenging people. It also means teaching and pushing and pressing other people forward. Now, how do we know that it's that type of encouragement that Paul is exercising here? Not the getting his arm around people, you know, they're hard-pressed, they're persecuted, there's riots stirring up around them as there had been in Ephesus, and they do just need a pat on the back and some cheering up. How do we know that's not the sort of encouragement that Paul is undertaking here? Well, let's just look at two examples in the New Testament when the instruction is given, the command is given, that we be encouragers of one another. The first is from uh, the unknown author's letter to the Hebrews in chapter 3, what we're studying in our rooted group. And the other then is from Paul himself to Timothy, who's mentioned in this passage. The instruction about how he should carry on, take the baton, carry the flame forward. Let me read you both passages. The first from Hebrews chapter 3, and then I'll read from 2 Timothy chapter 4. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. That's the instruction. Encourage one another daily. Then later Paul would write this. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, this instruction. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Correct, rebuke, encourage. Why? For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Two instructions, two encouragement. But it still doesn't, you know, nine times out of ten we read that word and we think about bringing comfort, being near to someone, 
You know, it's encouraging to hear stories of, of successful mission around the world. It's encouraging to see young people in the church taking on responsibilities. Why can't it be that sort of encouragement, Sam? Well, let's have a look at the problems that surround these commands, these instructions to encourage. In Hebrews chapter 3, this is what it says. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage one another so that you may not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Or in the letter to Timothy. Correct, rebuke, encourage. Encouragement being comfort there would seem strange in that sort of little trinity, but put that aside. Why? Because people don't want to put up with sound doctrine. They don't want the truth. Instead, they're going to go out of their way to gather people around them who will just tell them what their sinful, selfish, self-centered years want to hear. Now, I just put it out there. I cannot fathom how the sort of encouragement nine times out of ten we put into an instruction, a passage, a situation like that has any power to stop our hearts from being sinful, unbelieving, turning away from the living God. How it has any power to make sure that we stay soft rather than the hardness that is brought on by the deceit of sin. How simply getting alongside people and saying, you're heading in the right direction, you're doing okay, is any sort of answer or solution or antidote to folks who want to shut out of the truth and just sit in that reverberation chamber of what they already want to hear. These are severe warnings. And it seems to me that it makes much more sense that what's being instructed here is that we encourage in that sense of exhorting, of challenging, of pushing towards change and um, growth in ourselves and one another. It seems to me that both of these instructions come out with this discontent or, or, or even a fear that something might happen which really shouldn't be the case. Are we a people who want to be encouraged? Are we a people who want to encourage others? Who want to be challenged? Who want to have the word of God brought into our lives sharper than any two-edged sword that will cut us? The Christian life should be one of extreme discontentment. Never satisfied with where we have arrived. Certainly not wanting ourselves to be built up, but wanting Christ to be made more real, Christ to be presented, Christ's gospel and his hope to be there on a plate for us to feast on day by day by day. The problem is that we are far too content with where we are, where one another are, where the world is around us. The problem is we're far too keen to seek out the sort of encouragement that is just patting us on the back rather than pointing us towards Jesus. I mentioned that the word encouragement is parakleo, that's the Greek word. It's interesting that it's also the name that Jesus himself gives to the Holy Spirit in several passages in John's Gospel. The paraclete, 
the one that he is sending, the one that is coming after him. And there are some translations that describe or translate that paraclete, that encourager, as the comforter. I think it's the authorised version is one of the ones that translates it in that way. But again, if we take a moment to consider, well, what is the work of the Spirit outlined in, our, in the Scriptures in our lives? What even is it that, the, that, that Jesus says that this paraclete is going to do in our lives? I think we'll see that it's so much more than that. So much more than just being comforted and sort of having our mood raised. But it's being driven. It's being encouraged. It's being pushed forward. In John chapter 14, this is how Jesus puts it. That the paraclete, or in the NIV, I think it's the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. What will he do? He will teach you all things. Now again, advocate, not a particularly comfortable term for us. What does that mean? The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is one who is going to teach you a particular thing, teach you a particular way of life. Not confirm, not endorse your old sinful way of life, but will lead you into more truth. Or again, later, chapter 15, when this paraclete comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, he will testify about me. Now, of course, we're going to have comfort. Of course, we're going to be relieved when we hear the sweet gospel repeated to us by others, when the Holy Spirit reminds us inside of us of the truthfulness and the fullness of what Jesus has done. But it's more than that. This Spirit of truth leads us on, leads us forward. John chapter 16, that same spirit of truth will come and he will guide you into all truth. Elsewhere, we see the Holy Spirit being described in ways that are more in tune with this pushing and driving us forward. Acts chapter 1, where we begin our tale of the early church. Jesus says, that we are to remain believers until the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit comes on them so that they may be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we see. This is a Holy Spirit which will help them to go, not to stay with it. You stay where you are now and you wait. And when the paraclete, when the encourager, when the advocate comes, he will lead you on. Or Paul, reflecting in that letter to the Galatians, speaking of what it is that the Spirit achieves in our life. He says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Since we live by that spirit, he says, let's keep in step with that spirit. Let's follow where that spirit leads. Let's expect season after season after season for us, these trees, to bear fruit. What is it to encourage? What is it to be content as a Christian? It's not right that any of us should ever think that we've arrived. 
that we've made it, that we don't need to grow anymore, that we don't need to know anymore, that we don't need to go anymore. Of course, we should be content with whatever circumstances and situation God puts us in, but there has to be this constant discontent, dissatisfaction, this ants in our pants when it comes to our spiritual life, and it needs to be spirit-filled, pursuing truth, pursuing Jesus, pursuing Christ-likeness, pursuing the growth and the advance of his kingdom. So I finish with a question we began last week. What does a Christian look like? A Christian is someone who, by the Spirit, by God's word, by the church that they've gathered around them, is constantly being poked, is constantly being prodded, is constantly feeling this sense that they need more, more of Jesus, more of the fruit, more opportunities to bear witness to his greatness and his glory and his power at work in their lives and the potential for that to be true for those around Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that we will be discontented with where we are in our spiritual journeys. Not satisfied with this ticket for a place at a later date, but wanting to know, wanting to grow, and wanting to go even this very day. Lord, help us to know Jesus more. Help us to look like him more and send us out even into the darkest places that we might shine your light for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.